Hello everyone and you're welcome to the Film Network Ireland Rap Chat podcast. My name is Sean T. O'Malley and this is my first solo podcast. Um, so first of all, I need to say this is sponsored by Film Equipment Store and my thanks to the lads, Paul and Paul, um, for bringing myself and Mia Malarkey on board as the um, extra hosts um, for my first solo podcast, I was interested in looking at first features um, and in particular Redemption of a Rogue. It is a brilliant, imaginative, ambitious and entertaining Irish film. I spoke to writer-director Philip Doherty in Connemara and producers Tamron Reinecke and Emma Foley in Dublin about their experiences making the feature film, how they worked with an initial budget of €45,000 um, and how that called for collaboration right across the crew. Um, how they managed to scoop two of the biggest awards in one of the most prestigious film festivals in the country. And we also then touched on things like the importance of confidence and naivety in the right measures and having someone in your corner in this difficult industry. And we also of course, I had to talk about the difficulties that are presented by COVID-19 and the possible opportunities for creativity that it has provoked, including Philip's upcoming theatrical production, uh, which will be one of the first theatre productions that we will be seeing post-lockdown. Enjoy. And so in front of me, I have Emma Foley and Tamron Reinecke of Pale Rebel Productions. Um, you're both very welcome to the show. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so when I first contacted you about coming on the show, it was with the idea of maybe focusing on how great it feels to get your first feature into the FLA. But now that a couple of weeks have passed, I have to ask you the question, what does it feel like to get your first feature into the FLA and also be awarded with Best Irish Film and Best First Feature at the FLA? Tamron, you go. <laughs> um, it's been a, a very um, whirlwind experience. I like So we've, we've reacted really differently. So Emma was ecstatic, I think, when it happened. You were, you were like, especially when we won. You were like, this is great. And you just totally like it all sunk in really quickly. Uh, I went and had a cup of tea and read my book and went to bed. Like no joke. After we won, I was just like, oh, I'm very uncomfortable. And I, I feel uh, very unsure about things. I'm going to go read now. And then uh, it took me about a week. It wasn't until I, I left Emma a voice note on Saturday. So like a week later. And I was like, Emma. We won two awards at the flat. What? And I was like, I know, this is my seventh day of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while to sink in because I think we'd worked so hard. We And we had put so much into it. And the end was particularly difficult in terms of like meeting timelines and getting everything across the line. That when we um, when we found out we'd won, my my first reaction was just like, Oh, I'm going to go sleep now and, uh, you know, I'll figure out how I feel later. But obviously, once it kind of did properly sink in, uh, there is a real, a real genuine excitement about the future for, I think, the two of us. It was a really big, it's a really big step. We're a small production company where 
we're, we're just starting out our first feature and it's really opened up some doors like already and it's only been a short period of time it feels like the beginning of something else so we'll always be really grateful to the FLA for that I think Great and like because of what's going on this year do you think that your experience was any different because of the fact that there wasn't a physical FLA that you weren't actually in Galway? Yeah um, yeah I mean probably it was it was a weird one because it was obviously bittersweet I mean you know when we were when we got into film like only three years ago we went to the flat for the first time and didn't know what it was and we were just really taken with the whole experience being down there and you know I remember being down there with Tamron and we just were like oh we can't wait till we have our feature here and have our feature here and, and get to you know revel in all of this and celebrate the way people do um so it was kind of bittersweet, obviously, but it, it, I think the FLA did an incredible job. Uh, like, it felt very atmospheric from home <laughs> and, you know, doing things like the Zoom Q&A. And I thought they did a really, really good job of, um, in a very short space of time, deciding to go online and doing it the way they did. And, mm. um, you know, I f- we, we felt, like, incredibly supported and the film got to be seen by a lot of people. Well, I'd, I'd love to say, you know, that I, I was kind of, cool and quiet and reserved but I wasn't I was just absolutely elated it, it felt great whoever says words don't mean anything it's wrong it felt absolutely brilliant no we're, we're really excited Writer-director Philip Doherty brings us back to the origins of the project It was an unusual journey I think for Redemption of a Rogue so um, I think b- back in 2012 I um, we made a web series called The Begrudgers which was an RT storyland and we were able to get some funding then off Cavan County Council um, to make a, a feature film. It was a small amount of funding. Um, but yeah, there's this great art scene happening in Cavan that were involved in the Brigadiers, but involved at the Gonzo Theatre um, and then Town Hall Cavan Art Space. So it's this underground network of local artists, a lot of visual artists, a lot of musicians, a lot of performers and dance and acting. So, um, and we all sort of collaborated on these big, massive, sprawling, you know, productions, multi-art form productions. Um, like we were doing theatre shows with like 150 people in them. We did five of them. <laughs> so, so one of them was Frankenstein where we took over half the town. It was in four locations throughout the town. So we're doing these massive shows, but we never made a film. Um, and it was my kind of dream to, to make a feature film. And uh, so I had this funding for quite a while, but I was in Dublin and making theatre shows. I never quite had the focus to do it. But in the meantime, I was writing scripts so I wrote four other scripts, feature film scripts. Now, some of them are complete off the, off the rails, wacky comedy sort of things. Um, went down a real bad surrealist rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but I, I, just, I kept writing them and I was approaching producer, producers with them. And they just, it was, wasn't sticking for whatever reason. Um, and I think the, the story for Redemption of a Rogue, it was kind of, it was always with me, oh, like for for a long, long time. And that story of, of, you know, the son coming back after his travels and with a day to live and saying goodbye to, to everybody into the world. That was kind of stuck with me. That was kind of the rough bones of it. So I think after writing these other screenplays and being kind of, you know, laughed at or rejected and saying these are, are ridiculous and um, even, and they were probably right, um, I kind of, okay, well, this story's not leaving me. Because you have story ideas um, pretty much every day, but very few of them last to, to the next day. So this one stayed with me and I had to pay attention to it. So th- that's when I, I started writing Redemption of Row, which is about, um, which I started in 2018, I think. All right, okay. 
Okay, that's interesting. So, because I actually would have thought that maybe the idea went further back. But I suppose the, the idea goes further back, but the actual writing of the script is a little bit more recent. Yeah, no, I was always kind of percolating away there. And um, I think one of the... When things started clicking, when I was re- researching it and what I was going to write about, and um, I, I kind of... Um, you know, I had a Catholic upbringing. My mother's very Catholic, going to mass and going to church, and a very happy childhood. My 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 dad, but um, um, I think that that whole mythology of the church, those rich stories, have always stayed with me, and it, it was never unusual for me to kind of imagine statues coming alive and and um, hearing these kind of Old Testament stories. But it's the Stations of the Cross that it was an idea that I had. Before my God, it's very much like a comic strip or a movie storyboard. Storyboard, yeah. And um, and I was like, there's something really interesting in that. Once I melded the two and used that as my scaffolding for the whole story, things started to really move forward for me. And that's when I, 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 I now parts of it has fallen away, but that was the, the main structure that I started using. So I, st- I started writing the, the the script, and after about two drafts. Um, I was getting excited by it to, to the point maybe I can show somebody this um, and I, I was chatting to different people who've made films before different producers and the budget that I had and I, I had 45,000 euro which is nothing really when in, it's, a, it's a short film budget really there was a lot of pressure over the last couple of years to make a short and I, I wouldn't I just I didn't want to make a short film I had already made a couple of shorts and made a, a four part web series and I just felt it was the right time to make a feature film with the, the network of artists around me. Um, just it just it, a lot of what happened in this production was from the gut, and um, but the the story of redemption of a rogue. Um, I guess uh, you know once I approached producers and it was all under rain and the scale of it, they're like, you can't you can't really do this. And um, but I, I and I wrote a lot of it while listening to music, so it was very um, visual. But um, so I kind of bottled it, to be honest with you. And um, I, I went off to Amsterdam, of all places, and um, and I came back and said, OK, I, I need to make this film. This this has to be made. And I'm not because I already had the, the four other scripts that couldn't be made. So I wrote this other script that will probably stay in my drawer forever. Um, and it was it was kind of a similar true line, similar storyline, similar main character um, arriving home into this into this rural town but it was just lads arguing in rooms it was very much little plays in different rooms it would have been very easy to shoot on 45,000 euro but it it wasn't a film I don't think but I sent it to Shane Conathan who wrote my left foot and I'm very blessed to have a friendship with him and um and I sent I said I, I got a bit cheeky then I sent him that script and then that evening I'll send him Redemption of a Rogue as well and see, would he read the two of them, even though, you know, the man is very busy. And he rang me pretty much the next day, and he said, Philip, I read the two of them. And he goes, you can't make that other thing. Redemption of a Rogue, that's a film. I'm, I can see everything in it. He was saying, it reminded me of, like, a, the title and the, and the how dark it was in a visual of a Tarkovsky film. And he was going, this is, this could be, there's something really good in this. And he drove up to my house that evening to kind of, you know, convince me even further and to talk through about it and... So I was like, okay, um, maybe I, I should... Why was I trying to make the film I didn't want to make at all? And yeah. Redemption of a Rogue was always the one that I wanted to make and I just didn't have the the courage or the... the, the um, I, I suppose the, the, the push to do that. So I, I, I knew it was going to be difficult, but with this network of, of artists around 
and the spirit in Cavan, I thought maybe we can pull this off. And I suppose as well, like when you're trying to get people like that on board to work for, for you know, for maybe little or no money, if you present them with a script that is really visual and inspiring and feels like this could be something really special, it's much more easy to get them on board than if you present them a script that's, you know, very kind of safe and much more doable, but possibly not as exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is stuff that I didn't really know at, at the time, but because I, 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 my head was just, I have to make this film and I want to be plausible. And you're talking to different people saying you can't do it. And the, it's it's very hard to follow your heart at times and follow, follow your gut. But having someone like Shane Connaughton to kind of go, no, this is what... And then I, I gave it to um, other brilliant writers like Eugene O'Brien to have a read and Pat McCabe and they were very enthusiastic and encouraging as well so I had a, 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 a win behind me then of, of excitement from that and you need those sort of mentors I think around you to have especially on your first film I think and but it, like just to kind of pick you up on that they in a way were only just reassuring you on your own vision yeah as opposed to directing you they were just saying no you're right go with what you believe yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it is easier to hear it from somebody else, especially yeah. if you don't have maybe a lot of experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, your confidence can, is, is, you know, bef- yeah, your confidence isn't soaring because you don't have the experience behind you. And it was, I hadn't met anything on screen since, since 2012. Um, but there are writers and they knew me um, personally. And they're like, Philip, this is more you. This is because I actually Eugene read, read the two and he goes, this one's you. This one is not you at all. And um, so they, they were very much encouraged. But yeah, there were writers, there weren't producers thinking of budget as well. And they're saying this is the more exciting story to go after. So um, and you're absolutely right. Having that script and, I went, you know, I redrafted then a few more drafts. And then I felt like I was in a position then to to start showing people. You mentioned that you wrote the FLA maybe three years ago and you thought about having your own feature up in the FLA. Was that always the plan from when you set up Pale Rebel Productions? It was always to make a feature? Yeah. 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 No, we, myself and Emma, through <laughs> naivety and doe-eyed sort of like ambition. And start, total arrogance. Totally. I mean, sorry, I should, <laughs> I should add in total arrogance. Um, and it's just a deep-rooted belief that you can do anything that you want if you put your mind to it, which has always held, uh, you know, held us true. Um was that like when we started Pale Rebel, there was no question. It was like, it wasn't like, oh, maybe we'll do that. It was like, okay, cool. Well, let's just make a couple of shorts. And we had both basically come from totally different backgrounds. I worked in gaming. Emma worked in marketing. We didn't know each other. We met on a writing course, a full-time writing course, because we had both quit our respective jobs separately, not knowing each other, to pursue this career in film because we had... Put, we'd, we'd kind of uh, turned away from it when we were younger in the sense we were like, oh, film, it's so idealistic and it's, you know, it's too far out of reach. And then I think as we came into our, like, respectively came into our uh, mid-twenties, we're like, no, like, that's what I want to do. And so we quit our respective jobs and then went traveling again. We still didn't know each other through Central America at the same time, not knowing each other. I know, it's uh, so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> and we came back from that trip um, and we both joined this full-time writers course. Um, and at the end of that writers course, you were to make two short films with a very low budget. And we we made those two films and basically <laughs> realized that, A, we really like working to get together and we have the exact same, I think, ethos and sort of perspective on the way in which, you know, you should, you should work and push yourself and drive and ambition. But also that we probably... 
um, had like an aptitude for producing based on our respective backgrounds, like a bit of a business acumen for it. And that's had things that, you know, would help um, elevate you in that role. And so we we just were like, will we start a company? It's like, yeah, OK, we'll start a company. It's like, will we we were just going to make loads of films. Yeah, okay, cool. So for the first year, it was like 17 projects we made. Short films, a web series, a short documentary, a music video, like as much as we could possibly make to learn as quickly as we could. And that entire time, there was never a question like, obviously, we're going to make features. Obviously, we're going to make films that everybody sees. Obviously, we're going to make films that go to the cinema. It was just a question of like, when was the right time for that to happen? Um, And so when Jer, who's the executive producer on Roar, uh, Redemption of a Rogue, <laughs> nicknamed Roar by crew. Um, he randomly called me one day. I was literally cleaning, I remember. I was vacuuming and he called me and he was like, hey, like, um, I think it was Shimmy Marcus. Yeah, Shimmy or Maureen. Sure, Shimmy or Maureen Hughes had, who we didn't know or like had not at that point like interacted with, had heard about us from somebody else and had recommended, it was a real like chain of like mm-hmm. recommended. Some of the actors in Bo. Probably. Yeah, like a couple of actors in Bo who we'd probably worked on and, you know, um, you know, great and thank you to them <laughs> for recommending us. And he came to us and he was like, oh, you know, we're looking for a producer to come on board. And he sent us the script and we, I think we both knew instantly. We read it and we were like, okay, this is it. This is the film we're going to make. We're going to make this. This This will be the, the our first feature. Because at that point, me and one of the things I think we were good at was saying no. We were not, we were quite good at saying no, um, which I think people can kind of struggle with at the beginning. It's, uh, you know, in the, in, in the industry we're in, and I'm sure yeah. you've kind of seen this, like there is a sense that you have to say yes all the time. Whereas we actually turned down on quite a few projects because we were like, we really need to make, the right choices for us creatively, the right choices for us for like our future. We were kind of always thinking like that. And so when the script came, we read it. I remember we both, we looked at each other, we were in the office and we were like, oh my God, it's really good. It's really good. It's an incredible. And then it was just like, oh, oh okay. And there was just so much excitement. And then there was a little bit of money there, um, 45K. So a very small amount of money. Yeah, Emma and Tamron come in like swooping angels. <laughs> so because yeah, like I've, I've heard it said that the three most expensive words you can write in a film script are exterior, night, rain. And I don't know how many times when, I was, and animals when I was reading your script, I came across those three words one after the other and going, oh, geez, how is he going to make this movie? Well, yeah, no, that's a very good point, uh, Sean, because my ignorance was an absolute blessing. <laughs> it was, I didn't know that. I was just kind of, oh, this this could be a good scene, and this is how I saw it. So I, I didn't know those things, and I think that's that helped me in, in, a, in a lot. So we were quite late on. I was producing it with Karina Charles as a producer back home, and Kevin from, from a theatre background, um, and she's was, we were very much on the ground and getting the locations and getting things ready, but... I was trying to get a production company with experience of making films on board to, to work with us or to co-produce or take it on, really. The Gonzo would have been doing a lot of the, the you know, underground work. Um, and I'd met other producers and, I, like, I was up and down to Dublin the whole time just meeting producers and people having, couldn't see how it could be done. And I was like, OK, it's getting closer to shooting time and I'm still producing this. Um and I had a camera, a, a director of photography, and then I, the person 
wasn't on board. It was just one of these things, but I kept moving forward and kept persevering. And then I got Jerry McNaughton on board, um, who's an, a friend of mine, but he's produced a lot of theatre shows in Dublin as executive producer. But he knows everyone in Dublin, knows the, the, the art scene quite well. So he got in touch. He, he found out about Pale Rebel Productions and Tamron and Emma, and it was heard on the grapevine that these two young producers are absolutely brilliant and they're ones to watch. So I met up with them, and just everything felt right. Um, from working with them I don't know just certain signs and I went with my gut with a lot of certain things um, and yeah we just we just hit it off initially from from the word go and then um, they absolutely loved the script and they were brave enough um, and maybe <laughs> the lack of experience helped as well I think because we're all making our first film but brave enough to jump off a cliff and do this together and I, I have to hand it to them like um they did um that that's that was such a, a brave thing to come to Cavan and bring a crew down and to, the, everyone um, worked really well together and gelled brilliantly but yeah they, they, they were courageous to do it and um and I think it, it paid off and it was you know for the last 18 months we we worked really well together okay so we'll jump forward now to you've just said yes to Redemption of a Rogue at what stage of production or pre-production was it at <laughs> oh my god okay yeah, yeah, yeah. five weeks before shooting <laughs> wild 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 and this is where naivety really comes in in a great way and like I I've said to Emma before like I I'm scared for when we're not as naive as we are because we still have so much to learn and it you don't know what you don't know and it's a lot easier to be like, yeah, of course. You know, when Jer and Phil came to our office, we were like, the script's great. You have some money, which is better than no money, which is like where we had been at with everything else until that point. Yeah. And so we were like, seems like really doable. <laughs> it's, we'll make it work. Don't worry about it. And then it was like, you know, it's only afterwards that you're like, we had five weeks to... And a yeah. lot of big choices were made in that time as well. Yeah, like it was, it was when we came and look, like obviously I think a huge, like we can't, it can't be said enough that like um, Phil has a huge network in Cavan and there were so many people who put a lot of time into the film before we got there. Um, there was a lot of work done before we got there. In, and I think particularly because he has a, a theatre background and he had, there's a real big arts community there. A lot of the stuff like um, location, some of the location stuff and uh, props and production design all of that was really in full swing like one of the bigger tasks I think for us was like kind of Phil and Jerry were sort of being like how do you make, make a, a film, film? you know <laughs> we, you, we've got all of yeah. the makings for you know a piece of art to be made but there's the element of like scheduling you, you know. and well, it was like this crewing up yeah. you know it was like this gorgeous alchemy between like theatre and film you know they were kind of Jerry and Phil were like okay you know we have all this amazing wonderful uh, creative experience in theater but you know how do you make a film and p- two people who'd only been in film for a year were like oh we'll we'll figure it out we've got you don't you worry about it and luckily we we did yeah <laughs> a big part i mean phil always says it was a guttural thing for him um which it is same and for us which we yeah and i think in our job as well we're mm-hmm. the same we all the one thing that we have very much in common in how we work is the three of us are very gut orientated mm-hmm. so you just meet somebody and you kind of yeah. You're like, well, this, you know, and, and so it was definitely after the first meeting with them, like we loved the script but when we met with them. We were like, no, this is definitely there's something really special here. That's sort of like you can't really describe it. It's untangible, but it's like, oh, I get shivers thinking about it sort of feeling. And I think he felt the same that like we got it or we we really wanted to make it work. And we really cared about the story and cared about like, the you know, what he was trying to do. 
Um, and so what we did was basically crew up for that. So kind of came in and tried to make it possible. And then it, and then it happened. So I guess we we did do our job. <laughs> I know. I know a lot of people maybe listening to the podcast might not have seen the film at the flab because did you sell out? We did. did. I hear that you sold out? Yeah. Just by the way, we sold out. Just uh, sorry, guys. I thought they have to keep an eye out for it later <laughs> on. But uh, I don't think it, it's giving uh, too much away by saying that it kind of rains for most of the film. Okay, you've got very little money. You're working with forty five thousand ish. Mm. How at that time we were working with forty five. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you achieve the incredible high production values that are there to be seen that I watched on my TV screen at home during the FLA online and really can't wait to seeing on a big, huge screen in a cinema? But again, I think that's the part of that's the Bershi decision. Like he very generously, you know, brought his camera and obviously like look he's so talented and skilled, he could pick up my iPhone and make something look gorgeous. That's just a fact. So, you know, it's not just that, but um, production value is brought in by the people that you bring in. And he's one of those people. And same with Joe, you know, like the quality there is just, uh, you can't really put a, a number on it. Like, and those those guys don't need a massive budget to make something yeah. spectacular. And then I think like ultimately um, Shane Carroll, who... Mm. Um, the rainmaker. The rainmaker. The rainmaker. The rain man. The rainmaker. The oh, magic man. Magic man. Yeah. <laughs> so the, he created the rain machine just completely himself. Yeah. Yeah. Shane is just the kind of guy that you want to call when things go wrong. You're like, I actually. Even crashed. even personally. Yeah. I, like This is a little story from the film. Like I uh, <laughs> had a little accident in our lighting van. Oh, yeah. And may or may not have damaged it quite badly. And I think Shane really was, and like, uh, bear in mind that I, we didn't know Shane super, super well. It's not like Shane was like a friend for years and years. He um, was brought in by Joe, I believe, like Phil knows him, but, you know, and asked, like, can you build some rain rigs? And this guy just was like, yeah, no bother. Yeah, I'll build, and I won't just build one. I'll build multiple different types of rain rigs. And he seemed to have a great time doing it as well. But he was the first person I called when I crashed the van because he was, I was just like, Shane will know what to do. And then I think I called Joe afterwards. Mm. It was kind of like, Both I was like, these are two people I met that I was like, you can, they're just a really, really reliable, hardworking, smart, like just hands-on individuals who just are problem solvers and film is just a, like film is just a series of problems that need to be solved. That and like that's kind of what filmmaking is. And so you need people like that. You need people who are can think creatively. Yeah, and 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 aren't afraid to like think outside the box. And that was one of Shane's. What he did, he just said, "We said, can you make it rain?" Um, and he said yes. And then he just went and did it and built pumps and big water tanks and hold water out literally from a river, you know, like filled up the water tanks himself. I don't know if that's legal. <laughs> no, no fish accidentally came through the rain system. Oh, no, no. no. <laughs> Who knows what's in the bottom of the tank, though. But yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he just, he had all the piping and all the working. He did rigs for the car. He did rigs for... Um, like on the windows so that it looks like it's raining outside the windows. You'll see a lot of the interior shots. There's like rain in the windows. He did he really impressively built this huge rig that went right across a town, like a street in Swanland Bar. We closed down the whole road. Thank you to the Cavan County Council, who were always extremely supportive of the project and went above and beyond to help us by doing things like closing down roads for us. And the JCB came out with this huge rain rig that he built onto it and it just poured rain over, you know. It's not a traditional way to make a film. The powers that be, or should I say the powers that pee, are still pissing down on Ballyloft here in Cavan. A tale of 
great deluge falls into my mind. A tale from the gutter. But even in the sewers of the world, all humans have a craving for life. Can I help you with something? It was very easy ringing up people, like actors, to, like brilliant actors, to, to, to be on board. And you've no money for the film. And here's the old story of the director ringing up. And But then when you say Aaron Monin's playing the lead, you can just hear that beat of silence on the other end of the phone and go, oh, OK, send me on the script then. And because if he's such, he's one of our best actors. If, you know, I think he's just like, he's top of his game, one of the best actors in the country. So that kind of got a bit more interest in people. Right. Get, well, at least they'd read the script and people really responded to that. And thing. so in terms of getting Aaron on board, how did you approach him? Or you knew him from beforehand? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we, um, we were both from Cavan Town and we were in new drama together when we were teenagers. We were in youth drama plays like the, the Plough and the Stars was our first play he was playing Fluter and I was playing a four foot Jack Clitterow <laughs> and Aaron I can tell you was always brilliant <laughs> he was 15 and had a perfect Dublin accent <laughs> um, so we were friends always and he went on a trajectory of course from from being in Trinity to um, in the Abbey plays and then Druid and travelling the world while well, I was kind of travelling the world too but with a backpack and a drink problem. So it was a very different <laughs> different way of travelling the, the, the globe But um, in our 20s. But we were always kept in touch and he was always very encouraging and he always would meet me for a coffee and he'd be on the stage in the Abbey and I'd be working away on a, on a script and a radio play or whatever it was. But we, 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 all, we always um, were friends and he was always very encouraging. So it, 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 it came to the stage where we're like, God, we'd love to make a project together. And I was running a theatre in Cavan called the Gonzo Theatre and him and Brian Burroughs came down and did a Christmas Carol and they'd always come down and do shows, but we never had worked directly on a script of mine. So, um, yeah, and we just, let's make, I talked talk to him about the film, but he was on board. He wanted to make a film with me even before I pitched him the idea for Redemption of a Rogue. Um, and he had heard other ideas, but he was, you know, still supportive, enthusiastic. But he loved Redemption of a Rogue, and um, that was a huge relief. He, he kind of, he, he thought it was. He, I remember him saying it's like the Big Lebowski in Cavan. I thought that was a, be- <laughs> a very high, beautiful compliment. But um, so yeah, we were we were always looking forward to doing a project together, and I can't believe it, that the first one would be an actual feature film. I have to say now, it's a real. It was a real coup getting him. First of all, for the reasons that you mentioned, that like having him on board frames the project in a different light when you're approaching other actors or other people to get on board. But also, like the language in the film is very, it's very theatrical. But not every actor can deliver that. And I suppose Aaron is someone who's got such great experience on stage as a theatre actor that he has his mouth works with language. He, he's used to using language and kind of milking language for everything you can get out of it, but also deliver it in a kind of toned down filmic kind of way, which is obviously you know, a reflection on his, his ability as an actor. How then did you kind of go about finding the actors to fit in around him in his world, in Jimmy's world that he's come back to? Yeah, so it's... Um, I, I, Aaron's such a brilliant actor, but the, the kind of... 
The style of the film is that um, even though Jimmy Cullen is this character with these wild and absurdist and perverse and very dark thoughts that run away with themselves, he's kind of the straight man in it in many ways. So he's arriving back into this larger than life world where all these are these mad, beautifully mad characters, larger than life characters and and that when the world is very heightened. So I think it gave a license for the other characters to be that little bit bigger. So um, I wanted to work with a lot of actors I've worked with before with the Gonzo Theatre. And um, so I guess I, I cast off the table from, from people I've worked with before and people I know, but mostly from theatre productions and people that I admire in theatre productions as well. Um, so, I mean, um, Kevin McGahan has done a lot of work with the Gonzo Theatre, so he played one of the, one of the thugs. Uh, Kieran Roach has been in a lot of Gonzo shows before and he's the, I thought, you know, he was a lovely <laughs> opposite for, for Aaron Monaghan in, in many ways. Um, and then there's a lot of other actors like Rayford Simons, Fiona Fitzpatrick, Paul Maron, who, who are other actors that I've worked with before and they're brilliant, brilliant comedy character actors. So they suited the whole world of, of the film. And then um, people like Lorna Quinn um, and Liz Fitzgibbon, who I know pretty well. I know Liz from doing theatre with Phoebe Bean. Um, and she's just brilliant at comedy. She's just like given given a script to her. You know, she just nailed it. And the time constraints we were at when we we're shooting her scenes, it didn't matter to Liz because she just knocked it out of the park each time. And then Lorna Quinn, I don't know. I just um, for some reason I just thought I'd never had anyone else in mind to play that part. Um, and I think she just d- d- done a wonderful job. And then Charlie Bonner of all the the actors that came on board. Um, that was the, the Harry Gilson was a part that I was a little bit worried about, and Charlie done such a, a brilliant job on it because he made it such a he made such a human part. He brought so much to it. So a lot of the actors were people I knew from watching in stage productions, actually. And then Ashling O'Mara was probably the one of the only actors that I hadn't known personally or hadn't worked with before. But she came in and did an unbelievable audition. She just like brought read the part of Masha and just brought it to life in a way that I, I could I could never have hoped for so that that was the, the pro- so a lot of it was me sitting at a table um, I worked with it, this person would be perfect for this part and even right down to the people in within the scenes like just their images in, in the scenes from local local people that I knew in, in Calvin The film wouldn't have been possible unless it was specifically Aaron playing the lead because he was just committed in that way that goes far above and beyond the normal level of commitment maybe you might um, require of an actor. He was just there. He was just in it to win it. And, you know, <laughs> we couldn't, we genuinely couldn't uh, have made it without him. He's one of the nicest, he's one of the nicest people. And he was in horrific conditions. Like he came on set with a sinus infection on day one. And we, he was in the rain straight away. And it was January in Calvin. It snowed. It was minus weather. He got into a freezing cold lake. He was hung up in a tree, you know, and he was able to like endure all those ridiculous conditions um, and be able to do an incredible job. And like, still be so sound. And uh, yeah, be, and be sound. Yeah, that was the thing. Like he Talented was re- and sound. Yeah, talented and sound. He was just a really lovely guy, very um, amenable and amicable and got on with everybody and just did it did, did a great job mm. and did it like very professionally like he's just like this is it we're doing it yeah um so yeah it was it was great to get to work with him and we uh we're very thankful for everything that he put into the film and he did an incredible job I think everyone comments on how good he is like yeah. he just is a he really brings depth to the role he brings some really sincere kind of yeah. emotional depth to yeah. it um but, but yeah there was a few Calvin actors 
like um, Hugh, I think, is also from Calvin, right? Hugh O'Brien, yeah. And he's the dad. He's Jamie's dad. And he was so, so wonderful to have him on set. Like, I think everyone, he was only on set a couple of times, but every time he was, I think people were really He was, yeah, he was like kind around. of person that everyone, like, would kind of go quiet and be like, Hugh's here. And, yeah. like, we'll help him, like, we'll get him ready. And, like, everyone would get quiet and we'd get really, like, it felt very relaxed. Like, he wanted to be relaxed for Hugh because mm. he was quite a, quite a um, what's the word, Gravi- gravitas about him? Like, you sort of, you know, so does Charlie Bonner. Like, they're both very, like, mm. great people to have working on the set. But, like, Hugh, we put him in a freezer. Do you know what I mean? Like we had, we so had him in a freezer. It wasn't a body double. Oh no, like no, no, no! He was in that freezer, and like fair play to him. Oh like he, again, another person who just wanted to go above and beyond, and like he was, he had like suggestions for various scenes that he was doing, and all like phenomenal, very, very sneakily funny. That man. <laughs> there, there are just some standout performances, and he often gets commented on. Like people. Uh, we did a test screening mm. and um, on after the test screening, like uh, you collate all the information. So this was during the rough cut, like we hadn't finished the film. Um, but like the amount of people that sort of were like, the father's great. <laughs> the fa-, And he's like, a, you know, he's a supporting role and he's not, as Emma said, he's not in a huge amount of the film. But every time he's in it, you really remember. Two of the kind of big actors in it and big names in it were Shane Connaughton and Pat McCabe that were in the film. So the, the thing with Shane Connaughton, like, Two of my role models, they're from the same area. Shane Conan has written an Oscar-winning film and Pat McCabe was like the godfather of black comedy in, in rural Ireland. So I, I just had to have them in the film because they're heroes and um, and very helpful on it. But one of the interesting things with Shane was... Um, so the, he, he was in the film as the um, hardware store owner, but he's based in London a lot of the time and um, he comes home to Ireland every now and again to Dublin and he has a place in Cavan. Um, but the guy I had playing the hardware store owner got sick a few days before we're shooting it. Um, and I was like, oh God. So I rang Shane Connaughton up in the complete fluke, please God, light a candle, ma'am. Up. <laughs> um, and he, Shane answered the phone. Um, I was like, Philip, I'm, um, I'm in Cavan tomorrow for three days. And he goes, what? Yes, I'm in Cavan tomorrow. I'm down to watch the Cavan match, I think it was. I was like, this is unbelievable. We're, we're shooting on Monday evening. You're, you're going to be around. He goes, yes, yes. So he came in and absolutely knocked the scene out of the park. And when there's things like that happening, you're kind of like, maybe this is meant to be, or there was just lovely, happy coincidence and serendipity like that. Kevin McGahern, you know, extremely busy guy with his TV work and his uh, comedy circuit. He was, he was doing a comedy circuit. And I rang him up to be in the film and he said, I've only got five days free. I'm in the middle of, a, of, a more, of an Irish tour. Um... And the five days that he was free were the five days that his character scenes were done. And you're like, oh, well, that's you can't say no now, Kevin. <laughs> so it was just magic when those little things started happening and fall into place. And you felt like, God, this, there's just something, something special or something right's happening here. And to move on to the actual production now, was there any stage during the production when you're actually filming where you thought to yourself, I've taken on too much? Um. I never really doubted, to be honest with you, but there were tough days. Um, I think there was an amazing team there on board. There were long hours, but I, I, I was just completely loving every second of it. Even the, the, even the excitement and the stress of it and trying to get the shots and running out of time. My God, always running out of time. But, you know, I, I was loving it because we were so excited about the, 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 shoot, the shots that we were getting. Bershie Wagner was doing uh, cinematography and his his... his 
photography is just simply stunning. And his um, his cinematography and Joe Doherty's production design, I think, was just the two of them hit it off straight away. And I think there was a general excitement on set when we were seeing the rushes or seeing the images up on, on screen. So people were really on board. And because of the budget we had, everyone was doing this for a labour of love. This was a passion project for everyone. So it's absolutely magical that people did this, not for a ca- you know for, for you know for money or for a job. They did it because they love making films. And there were tough days, but then, you know, and we'd be pushing late into the into the evening. But then some of the shots we were getting at that magic hour when it was against it and, and pushing for another half hour and then another half hour. And then what we'd get and everyone would be like, okay, that was worth it when we'd see it afterwards or see it the next day. But yeah, I think everyone really, um, everyone was just unbelievable what they did. It was a tribute. The whole film is a tribute to all those people that worked on on this film. And it was a small enough crew but um, I don't know, there was a general buzz and excitement building and momentum as we were going through when people started seeing the footage. Yeah, and now to ask you about your approach, say, on the set, um, like the film, as you mentioned, the work of uh, Joe, your brother as its production designer, and Bershi as DOP really combined together to almost create an extra character, the character mm-hmm. of the, the environment, the location, mm-hmm. the world that Jimmy's coming back to. Um, like so it is a very very visual film which is why I just uh, one of the reasons that I enjoyed watching it so much the FLA the online FLA um, what is your what was your approach generally like on the day of filming do, do you kind of are you more focused on the visual stuff like that or do you spend a lot of time with the actors working on the performance or do you kind of does it kind of depend on the scene or does it depend on um, say the, the actors that you have or the, the type of uh, scene you're trying to get across yeah, I think it it was different from scene to scene, and I think there's you you know I think Aaron gave me a great piece of advice years ago. A good actor, or sorry, a good director. Um, I guess I asked him years ago. This is when he's doing. What's a good director? And he's got rhythm, and that means a bit of everything. You know, some actors need a word in the ear. Some people, you know, um, just different styles of directing. So on some scenes, yeah, I had to really go in and we'd kind of run the scene and talk to, to different actors. Maybe people coming in with less experience probably need a little bit more direction. Um, and then some of the bigger set pieces you're going to be very meticulous in how it's framed and how it's set up and, and how it's lit. And then there's so, sometimes where um, a scene might need a lot of dressing put in on, on screen or on camera that you kind of be overseeing. So it was different from scene to scene and it depended, yeah, absolutely from, from different actors. And then there'd be just things that weren't working and you just couldn't let it go and you had to keep going after it and going after it and, and trying to improve it. Like generally when you've, you know, Aaron would nail pretty much every take because he's so good. Um, but there were certain more technical things that probably need, and, and having the, I think that was kind of one of the toughest things is you know that the, the, the crew is sometimes getting restless and it's late, but you know in your heart of hearts you don't have the shot and you have to kind of be the bad guy and go, no, we have to go again, we have to go again. That that was kind of the, that, that was the, one of the, the, the toughest things. But when you look back at the footage, you're going, oh my God, I'm so glad that we pushed to get that. And and Bershi was always, you know, with me on, on that and, and there was sometimes we we're running out of time and we couldn't get the big setup shot that we wanted to because we had so little time left. So we had to think on our feet and think of a different shot that would work in the style of the film. So that was really enjoyable. And, and I think there was a lot of problem solvers on set thinking on their feet all the time. And that was so it was always a challenge each shot in, in, in many ways. Um, but it was such a fun thing to be kind of constantly coming up with these solutions along the way. Halfway through filming, we were like, of applause. <laughs> we were like, okay, 
we're not going to make this film in the days that we think we're going to make this film in. Like we just, it's just not feasible. We were, everyone was working their asses off to get it across the line. But we just got to a point where we were like, there's just, there's just, we just need a little bit extra. So we, we just made the decision, um, you know, which on a big budget film is different. You just say to everyone, oh, we're going to work extra and everyone, you know, is going to get paid extra. And, you know, people can, in, and if you, the person can't do it, grand, we can go hire somebody else because we have, you know, basically the money to do it. Whereas this was like sitting everyone down in a room. All the cast and crew. All the cast and crew and saying, we need to do, I think it was extra day or two. I, I just, I can't all... remember if it was an extra one or two, but it was, it was extra shooting. It, it definitely meant they were going to be there for at least another two or three days. Yeah, because we had, a, we took a day off and then came back and we sat them all down and we said, we think this is the best thing for the film, but you'd all just have to do it for the love of the film. And we need everyone to say yes. Like yeah. we can say yes. And we, and Phil would have worked 24 hours a day for six months to make the film. Like he, there was no problem with yeah. Phil. Bertie was on, Joe was on. Like the, a lot of those people had given a huge amount of themselves. But there's like, there's everybody in between. There's your ACs, your your crew, your camera team, your sound team, your um, everyone. costume. Everyone has to say yes. And then all the actors have to say yes. And everyone just sat quietly and then well, yeah they all gave us a round of applause <laughs> and we were like that's weird and then we left because we said have a think about <laughs> it individually obviously we're not going to do a vote in the room we're just we're calling you all in and sitting you down saying this is what we'd like to do if you're you know you don't want to do it come find us and say I'm not doing it and there's no, no one will hold anything yeah. against you and no one did. Everyone just a round of applause and that was now, it. I think retrospectively we understood the round of applause was because it meant that they were going to get to sleep for longer in those days. That's what that meant to them. That's why they clapped. We're like, what, what's happening here? But I put two and two together. It meant shorter days I think but longer yeah, sleeps. We kind of, it was like a good two and a half weeks into filming and we'd already filmed what, like 60 or 70% of the film. So like everyone's in at that point. They're like, an extra day or two has made no difference to me. Like, I've already given up so much for this. So, like... And we were a family. Like, we're all living together and oh, spending our days off together. It was, yeah. And by that stage, they're seeing, you know, what you're getting in terms of the shots. Mm. So they can kind of tell, you know, okay, this script looked amazing when I read mm. it, but actually what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is also fantastic work. So we're moving in the right direction. So it's kind of, it's worth, you know, investing a little bit more time in it. Yeah, yeah, I think everyone knew that something... I think anyone who worked on it, I don't want to speak to, for everyone, but I feel like there was a feeling, like I spoke about earlier on, this just magic feeling, sort of like something special's happening. Uh, so you you felt a sense of like, I really want to be part of it. And I think everyone was like, oh, well, we're in it now and we're in it together. And there's just no, we'll just carry on, carrying on. People went above and beyond. And uh, the film wouldn't have gotten made if they hadn't. Um, I think they knew that and we knew that. But what we felt was massively our job was to make sure everyone felt taken care of under those really difficult circumstances. Because, yes, it's the it was the, the lack of money and, you know, things like that that just made certain things impossible, impossible. But I think and I hope that everyone felt like we had their backs in this way where we really cared about everybody and we wanted everyone to get as much from the experience as possible. Like, it, it, it's not like we were working, like anyone was working for anyone. Everyone was working for themselves and getting, get, this was an opportunity for everybody. And I, uh, I think uh, most people, I feel, uh, felt that way about it. So that's, it really was like an entire creative collaboration. This film wasn't made by one person or two people or three. It was made by just everybody. And now to move on to the post-production period, um, like, how did the film change after you had shot it? 
like say in the edit when you were looking at what you had the options you had maybe things you might have missed maybe things that you got that you didn't expect to get thinking of bonus shots or little extra moments how did it change say from uh, during the editing process or post-production yeah well the first assembly was kind of um the film was a slow moving heavy art house drama <laughs> so that was, that was interesting as well why didn't but some scenes actually sung they really did like the our lady scene you could even see on the first assembly that this the rhythm was was kind of nearly there and um the scene with the solicitor as well but um yeah the the process of the the post production I, I loved every part of making this film. Do you know, I love writing. That's that's where I come from. I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. That's my passion. It always has been since I was a kid. Um, so I love that process for sure. And then directing on set. I loved it. I actually enjoyed it more than directing theatre, um, even though it was my first feature film. I just love working in all the different departments. And again, with the, with the post-production, so we had um, three editors on this. Um, so we, we had um, Richard Lennon just put together the assembly, um, the, the initial first assembly, and then... And Richard was your first AD, so he knew he the thing better AD, than yeah. anyone. So he, he, was, he was able to put it together in super quick time. But we had to put it together in super quick time because there was a funding application for Screen Ireland coming up. So, um, And he did, and um, fair play to him. And, and Emma and Tam put in a brilliant application because the money we had was from Cavan Arts Office, from Cavan County Council. And getting the Screen Ireland money was the first moment of like, maybe we have something potentially here. Uh, because it was an outside, you know, the outside for, you know, it's, we're in our bubble making this and it has to be made. And, uh, made and also, up. I suppose, it, it was a, a response or a reflection of what you had, as, because the money that you had to make the film came before the script. Yes. So that wasn't dependent on the quality of the project at all, whereas yeah, yeah, the Screen Ireland yeah, money yeah. was dependent on the quality of the project that you were working on and hoping to finish. Yeah, absolutely, on, on, the, on, the, on the film itself. I mean, the money from Cavan Art, they trusted me to do a project, and but they didn't know what it, what, it, it changed over the years. Um, but yeah, and they, they, what they loved about even the rough assembly was there was something very strange and the, the surrealist imagery and the comedy. They felt it was kind of fresh. And so Omar Gark did an, an initial cut and did a brilliant job. But we were under serious time constraints for, with Screen Ireland with the post-production money. So he had to hand it over to um, Alan Quigley, who did um, an amazing job. So Alan Quigley um, came on board and he was kind of the main editor on it then after that. So for months, me and him became best friends, whether he liked it or not. <laughs> he was getting, we were chatting every day. But what a cool guy, impeccable taste in film and really enjoyed making it with him. So from the script to the edit process, was was um, it wasn't that far off, I don't think. The main thing really was um, we really had to keep the pace and the rhythm up. But the main thing was that a lot of the surrealist imagery came at the top of the film um, and we moved that to the end of the film. That was the big structural move because we needed to get into the film as soon as possible, get Jimmy into the world of Ballylock. Um, and that, but what it was just, it was, it made more sense for it to happen, happen at the end. So that was the big structural move in the edit. And yeah, there was times of like figuring it out and taking chunks out and pulling them back in and then splicing up those chunks and interspersing them because it is, it has those surreal elements. So we were fortunate enough because at one point we had, oh, we had cut out basically a, lot, a huge chunk of um, the dream sequence, which had all the sets that Joe had built in this warehouse. 
and it was devastating but it, it just wasn't working where it was and it was like it just doesn't work and it's too long da 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 and then over the months you know between the the chemistry obviously between Alan and Phil and uh we all got to a place where it was just clear that it, it could be it could be used and reintroduced in, in different ways and clever ways and I think it works gorgeously now and, and they're all in there yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah he did a great he did an incredible job on mm. the edit and he put a lot of himself into it I, I used to nickname Alan the sorcerer because he was able to kind of fix certain things just with editing and it's funny how things you 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 could never see going can easily just disappear. We shot this scene, which was without doubt my favourite shot of the entire film. It took us, um, I think it took us six hours, seven hours to get one shot and we didn't use it. And it was a, it was about Jimmy in New York and it was this long, steady cam shot of, of coming through an alleyway, going up the stairwell and you see all these vignettes of scenes in the stairwell and win in, in inside windows lit up. So it was all like five or six little scenes and at the top window was Jimmy Culling in, in darkness sitting there with a bottle of whiskey. It was, and Bershey pulled it off with, with a jib and you're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. We're so buzzed after that. We all went to the pub and the excitement in the pub was, was unbelievable. And we never used it. We had, it had to go. <laughs> it's like, so... But it was it was the right thing to do because it, it was it was like three minutes long, slow motion, smoky Scorsese opening shot of like kind of taxi driver feel to it. And it just we needed to get into the film and the rhythm of it had to go faster. And we kind of went after that screwball editing and making it as, as quick and fast and, and the jokes coming as quick as we could, because I think that suited the color and style of, of the film. And then what next for Pale Rebel Productions? So many things. <laughs> we haven't slept in a long time. Um, yeah, we're currently, yeah, like we've, we've been really busy because uh, whilst finishing on post on uh, Redemption for The Flower, which in and itself was a huge amount of work, we also have been in pre-production on our next feature, which is with Savage Productions. Uh, Connor Barry is another well-known Irish producer, very, very great man who we met through Jerry McNaughton, who's actually the executive producer on Redemption. And uh, so we met him last year and then he was a mentor and a real help with Redemption in terms of um, helping us make a few key decisions and things like that and really mentoring us because he's, you know, he's a... Uh, he knows what he's doing and uh, he we built up a relationship with him and then he's working with Screen Ireland on the POV scheme, which is the their inaugural kind of flagship program for first time female directors. Um, and we've come on board with him now to produce that uh, for Antonia Campbell Hughes. So it'll be her debut feature. And we'll be shooting in October you. in Donegal. So. Yay, during COVID. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so another like, uh, you know, it's a it's a uh, in terms of budget, like it's a it's a bigger budget, but it's also not because, as yeah. Emma said, like we we made that film, you know, we made Redemption behind closed doors somewhere, you know, hidden away. Family but this made is family made. <laughs> this is a different kind of a, a new learning curve for us, which is like doing it in conjunction with a couple of other things that we have to keep in mind. So it's a it's going to be another kind of um, indie small film that need that we're going to push as best as we can to get the best possible film. Yeah, out. it's going to look it's going to be great. Like, yeah. and, and, and definitely like, you know, that next level and. Uh, no doubt like it'll far reach far beyond its its budget that won't be the 
the thing that yeah that's never the thing great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that's exciting and yeah we're really excited about that in, in terms of undertaking a production with COVID-19 in, in the world um, how does that change the way you approach um, it a lot massively um, I mean look making films is really I was going to curse really effing difficult <laughs> yeah like making films is so hard like it's <laughs> so hard sometimes I just you know complain about it not complain about it because I love making films and like I, I, I don't mind working 19 hour days mostly but it's so hard and to have this whole new layer on top of it, it is like slightly terrifying. But at the end of the day, you just get on with it, really, don't you? And you're just like, ah, oh, right. Just, it's just another thing to, to figure out. And, and, and actually, like, you know, there's opportunity to be had in it. Like, uh, you know, Antonia, basically, we worked with Antonia to kind of say, look, we don't want to make, you know, we don't want to restrict the film or the story because of COVID we still want to make like this a great film and it's a great script she's yeah, done an incredible yeah. job she's written something so, really yeah. beautiful so the next so the, the, the latest draft she's done uh, basically in, in it, COVID in mind is actually the best draft she's written uh, at all and like uh, everyone has kind of had that same feedback for her like it's not and it doesn't read as oh this is because COVID uh, but just some really amazing choices she's made, and it's 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 just brought the the film along even more. So we're really lucky with that that she's just that she was able to do that, and in such a short space of time as well, um, is really impressive. So yeah, but no, it's it's massively difficult. I'm not looking forward to <laughs> to the COVID stuff, but we'll get along with it. A lot of it's just logistical stuff that's just frustrating. But like I mean, like I said, film is just a series of problems that need to be solved. And this is just another one. So it's just, you just get on with it, right? Like that, that's our thing. It's just just like get it. on with it. Yeah. Just get on with it. So we've spoken a lot about your, the successes, obviously the big one being the recent success of Redemption of a Rogue. Um, but filmmaking is also full of lots of rejection and mm. kind of lower <laughs> moments and stuff. Um, what would be your approach to dealing with those moments in terms of say, maybe it's a, a funding application that doesn't go well or, um, you know, things yeah. not working out the way you'd hope on particular projects or productions. Um, I think well, our, our uh, yeah. going to be different. Okay. Is it? Because mine's going to be like, oh, it's all their fault. They're fools. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Fools. Yeah, actually, no, we have the same answer. Yeah, it's like, see you later. Yeah, like, we'll see you at the Oscars and if you... <laughs> no. That's so hard. Edit that out. <laughs> oh, my God. No, like, I don't even feel like... I don't feel bad saying that. Like, like obviously... Um, it, it, it's super hard to get you know, funding if, if we're specifically talking about funding but I think that that kind of encompasses like you know all the applications you have to go through all the different doors you have to try to get through to get a film made and people are constantly closing them and there's loads of reasons for that like it, it can really just genuinely be like they don't like what the story that you have they don't like the script that you have uh, it's not right for their slate or for our slate or whatever it is or but they're not willing to take the risk that's usually what I think that's normally but it, I do think we both have a really I mean, look, it's a healthy ego. It is kind of just like, that's fine. Like, we'll see you. Look, we'll see you again in the future. Like, we're not worried about it. Like, you, yeah, <laughs> I think it's and it served us well because it's kept us kind of like having a good time and having a laugh. When people say no, we're like, well, more is full to you. Like, we're going to do it anyway. Um, and maybe that sounds really like maybe it sounds really arrogant and, and it possibly is. But the reality is, is that this is not an industry to be in if you don't have a bit of like thick skin, thick mm. skin, assuredness. Like I don't, I was talking to my boyfriend about this. I was like, and this is a, you know, it's a hard thing to say out loud. Cause you're like, you wonder how people will, will think of this, but I don't know that I've ever thought I would fail. That's just not something I think about. It's like, 
No. I don't spend my time thinking like, what if it doesn't work? Yeah. And I, I, you know, we're still early days. So like it definitely could still all not really lead to anything else. And like, maybe this is the height of our success. But I mean, we don't believe any of that. Don't believe that. Like the reality is, is that the two of us have like pictures of our faces on like the Oscars, like in our office, because it starts as a joke and you're like, oh my God, we're going to go to the Oscars or we're going to do this or we're going to win this. Um, you know, we're going to go to Galway. It was never a question. Like yeah. it was like when our feature, our first features in Galway, that was always the rhetoric. And I, and like, I do think it's an industry that requires a certain amount of like, fuck it, we're going to do it. And like, we really believe in ourselves. Total self-belief. Like, yeah, there's just no, there's no room for anything else. Like at all. I mean, look, that like, don't get me wrong. There's been lots of low moments, but not out of thinking that we're going to fail. Never out of thinking we're going to fail. Always just like, oh shit, that didn't work out. Or shit, that, that sucks. Or, or this is really quiet. fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I've just sworn like three <laughs> times in a row. But I don't think either of us ever think we won't make it. Yeah. Like, you know, like or won't be air successful quotes. in our own, right. whatever we decide that yeah is. and look at it's early days and it's easy for us to feel this way we haven't probably hit any I mean I say we haven't hit any major roadblocks but that's not true like we've had a lot of people say no we've had a lot of doors closed we've I mean you know we've, we've never been funded for a short film ever we've we been, all our applications were rege- have been rejected we've been funded for features but I, I always think this is really funny like we have tried really hard to get funding for short films like through mm. all of the different funding bodies yeah. for multiple different scripts with multiple different collaborators with ourselves at the helm as the create like as the writer director with other people with some relatively well known like within mm. you know the indie space or in that like within our peer groups and we've never ever gotten funding for short films and then we went on and got and funding. we're just like see you later shorts we're gonna make a feature <laughs> <laughs> i do think like it is you know you can you could say like you can wait around and, and do everything like step by step and slowly and slowly. And, uh, you know, it we put take. all our eggs in our own basket, basically, <laughs> is what I'm learning from this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when I found out I was awkward yesterday. Oh, yeah. Emma finally realized she's, she's an awkward person. She didn't know before. I think I've sounded pretty cool on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll edit that out. <laughs> People will never know. Um, I have to say that, like, I'm, I'm a little bit in awe just listening to your confidence and like do you think okay so if Pale Rebel Productions didn't exist and you were both individual producers in the world of film floating around on your own do you think that you would have the same kind of the same self-belief and no. the same no, no okay so, so there's a lot of it is based upon knowing you've you've got someone else in your corner mm. that believes in you even if the funding application doesn't come back with a yeah, yeah, I think we've both also said, like, I'm not sure that either of us wants to produce separately at all. So, you know, there's other endeavors like we both write like uh, and things, you know, uh, things like that. That's but again, we're always working together. So it is it is just different. And, and you know, we've, we speak to a lot of freelancers who always say, like, oh, God, you guys are so lucky to have each other. So we, we, we do appreciate that because that is why it works. And I think that's why we've probably propelled at a, a pretty quick rate in film. Is because we've had e- uh, had each other, yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I do think like obviously we are both confident people individually, and I think in whatever respective fields we would have like been in in a different life, we Not probably in our personal lives, <laughs> but in our professional. <laughs> Professionally, we're quite confident, and I think um, we probably would have had that confidence in whatever respective fields we were in, but not to the level that I think we have it with each other in terms of, um, as you said, we kind of have each other to champion 
And if you get rejected, you have somebody who was there through the whole process, part of every step of the way is rejected alongside you that you can look at and be like, well, see these guys later because we got each other. Like, or we're <laughs> fine. Like, if I was it's alone like, getting that rejection, who knows how I'd feel? Like, so it's like, ooh. Like, sometimes you just need people to bloody be able to talk to you about these things. And like, you want it to be somebody who actually understands. And it's not always going to be the people outside of the room. You mm. sort of, so we're we're locked in a room together, both being like, ah, but it's great. Like, it, it, it really, it's really... I think it is why we are where we are, for sure. Brilliant. Well, thank you both for coming in. And Can you uh, just edit congratulations. out anything that makes us sound like narcissistic or egotistical? Too, <laughs> too hard. Arrogant. Too hard. Okay, to so that. I'll go back to my first question. <laughs> With rejection. Yeah, rejection. Well, it's something I've been used to all my life. <laughs> it goes right back to the pioneer discourse. <laughs> no, I am... Um, let me see. That's a that's a good question. I guess I, I, I'm kind of serious, Doug. I mean, you're you're. I've no one's going to give you. I I actually believe. Okay, you have two choices. You can feel sorry for yourself and give out and complain and start, and and that's you know it can feel good to give out sometimes and 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 but it's. Feeling sorry for yourself isn't a nice trait, even though it's really, really, really want to do that. Like <laughs> it's so bad with a bottle of whiskey, but um, and I I think. I can only talk from my own personal experiences and um, the only way I've been able to make work is by getting up and, and doing it myself and finding a way to do it myself. I mean, um, the Gonzo Theatre, there was no real space in Cavan for putting on young theatre for young people or even live comedy or even, you know, bands. So we set up a theatre. It was in the middle of the recession, so everyone was unemployed. So there was a whole group of people. So we set up the Gonzo Theatre and it became this sort of underground type black, it was a black box, sweaty space. But we were able to throw on plays. I mean, these are plays we wrote quickly, but they were very much, you know, driven by enthusiasm and comedy and, and energy. And so I, I've always, and the same with the film, it wasn't like, there was some funding, funding from Cabin Arts Office, but um, you have to kind of and, and get up and try and do it yourself. And I think you learn so much um, by doing that you're, 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 along the way and um, no one can really stop you from doing it yourself so um, I think that's the, 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 and don't be afraid I think um, every time you climb a mountain it's um, it's tough but when you're up there it's 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 a nice feeling and there's brilliant people you can collaborate and, and, and pick a great team around you and life's too short to be working with people you don't enjoy working with so once you've got a great team it, it should be really fun enjoyable experiences and um, and you'd be delighted you did it your way. I think in the end, and 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 go all the way. Do you know? Um, try not to compromise along that journey. Now, uh, as I mentioned, we're in Connemara because you are currently working as artistic director for Phoebe Theatre Company, and your next project is going to be what you describe as a drive-in drama. So it seems to me like it's something that sort of sits somewhere between a theatrical experience and a film experience. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the COVID-19... Um, What's that? Sorry, I, I haven't heard talk <laughs> yeah. about that. 19, yeah, COVID-20 now. <laughs> it's, um, it has... So COVID-19 is this virus that <laughs> originated. We don't know where it originated. So it has changed everything across the landscape and all forms of life, especially live entertainment and live art and especially theatre. So we had funding to make two big shows this year and one of them was we were really excited by it. It was going to be in the Galway Arts Festival and we're buzzed up for it. And 
and of course everything was um, thrown by the wayside and had to be postponed or put off and that's disappointing but it's absolutely same for everybody but I'm too restless and I was like well we have to do something and I think Phoebe and our brilliant visual theatre company and always have been and we have to do something visual and experiential and something outside and how are we going to do this with social distancing thankfully we've a brilliant you know Dara Kutursk is the executive producer manager of the company and he is um, your quintessential creative producer because we had the idea, let's do a drive-in, drive-through originally, then it changed to drive-in drama. That could work. The audience could be in the car. And he was able to rearrange the funding for this to happen. So that's once that was kind of on board and then Antivar came on board to, uh, as a partner in the production. So once the funding was changed, I was like, okay, now we have to uh, come up with an idea or the concept for this. We have kind of a concept the drive-in drama, the audience would be in the car. Um, so it made sense that the audience sitting in a car would be watching um, a car chase. And I always wanted to see on telly or in a film a Garda car chase. So it's pretty much a, gar- a rebel Garda chasing this dangerous criminal into the dark recesses of his mind. Um, so it takes a kind of strange sur- surrealist turn in there as well. But yeah, it's going to be a hybrid between um, theatre um, radio play because uh, the sound will be coming through or 90% of the sound will be coming through the car stereo um, rock concert because there's going to be a six camera setup with live editing projected onto a huge billboard type screen um, cameras inside the car and on the bonnet and around the area and um, live cinema because it's going to be they're going to be watching from their cars this um, imagery on a massive screen but with the acting performed live so it's complete backflip out of my comfort zone into doing this and it's kind of interesting working with the crew on it it's kind of new to us all because it is such a a marriage of all these different art forms but I'm very excited by it I have to say it's a brilliant team involved um McMurray's doing the visuals um and brilliant cast led by Dara Devaney and Fanulo Flaherty who are two brilliant film actors as well so I think the, the style of acting will be a little bit more subtle and less big than it would normally be on stage and like you say that it's a backflip out of your comfort zone, but it's actually like it's it's straddling both of the things that you have uh, done very well at both theatre and film. Now, obviously, with the awards for Redemption of a Rogue, um, like I think it's a fantastic idea because you've got you're sort of complying with the social distancing that's required for the audience members because they're all in their own personal space in their cars watching this, mm-hmm. and you're kind of you're lifting it a level above just a drive-in cinema which is a nice experience but with the fact that it's happening live it always adds a little bit of an extra i don't know the little bit of magic to it yes where uh wh- what's the next step where do you go from there like, or have you even thought about future projects in yeah. terms of yeah absolutely i mean i i just i i, I look the lockdown was so interesting um i am I, um... You know, the weather is beautiful. I was getting up at six in the morning because I, I, this is unusual for me now because it was so hot during the day I couldn't write. So I had to, you know, how am I going to work on stuff? So I, got, I was getting up at six because I didn't want to miss the day and going to the beach. and, and so, so we actually started getting really buzzed up about how, coming up with new ideas um, of making theatre outside of the auditorium. And I genuinely think this is an opportunity to create um, new performance ideas. I think it's um, a chance to kind of create a new style of theatre 
um, outside of the auditorium, a theatre that will, um, it's much more experiential. It's kind of looking at the art form from a brand new perspective. And I think it's something that Feebeen really want to do, starting with um, Fiek. We're looking to do another show in the um, autumn time, which is kind of, um, the audience um, will be on the street looking at a building and looking through the windows wearing headphones. So the audience become like these peeping toms, eavesdroppers. It's this voyeuristic type show where they hear what's going on behind, behind the window and behind the, the, the walls of people's houses and kind of, you know, listening into their intimate, darkest secrets. And that's something I'm excited about. And we wouldn't have thought of that only, and we're working with Dara Devani on that, and that's something I wouldn't have thought of only because of COVID-19. And then it just we got we started getting in a, a rhythm of stuff and all these other ideas. It's like, oh my God, this is this is much more in, um, exciting to me to make because I don't. It's something that we haven't done before, and I'm we have a lot of projects planned. Hopefully, over the next couple of years, that is going to be outside of the theatre. And I just I think the audience will be hopefully excited by it because it will be something different for them. Yeah, sounds amazing. Um, you strike me as someone who's got an amazing work ethic. What drives you? <laughs> what try? Um, I don't know, uh, Sean. I guess I, I, I'd be too restless if I wasn't writing, if I wasn't working. I think that's when, when I'm at my happiest, when I'm completely lost in, in some script or some story. But I don't know what, what, what drives me. Maybe um, a very Presbyterian upbringing. I know I was. I, was it's, my, 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 um, I, I love what I do, and I think it's a privilege to be making theatre and making film and making art. Like, I mean, I've, been, I've done a lot of jobs in the past where I was absolutely miserable. And struggling to get out of bed and the thoughts of it. So now I'm in, I'm, I'm just so happy and, and joy and, and uh, there should be a joy because of I'm, I'm lucky in the position that I, I'm in. And why not enjoy it and pour as much um, pour as much of yourself into these projects and, and working with people and and I think it's 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 a real gift that your job is creating experiences for audiences and, and try and give something um, beautiful to them something fun, something that's a bit of crack or something that they'll they'll enjoy. And I think now more than ever that people need to get out of their you know um w- with the whole pandemic and it's such a tragic backdrop and such a serious uncertain thing that's happening. I think now more than ever ever we need to be finding ways to entertain audiences and bring and bring them out of bring give them some escapism and I'm not afraid to create stuff that's escapist um and entertaining. I mean, why not? And uh, escapist and entertaining are two words that I would definitely use to describe Redemption of a Rogue. So, Philip, thanks a million. <laughs> thanks, Thank you Sean. Much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Again, my thanks to Philip, Emma and Tamron for their time and to you for listening. Redemption of a Rogue is being distributed by Wildcard, so keep an eye out for that at future film festivals and hopefully an upcoming cinema release. And Fiach, the drive-in theatre production directed by Philip Doherty, runs from August 12th to 22nd at Phoebean's headquarters in Connemara. And more details are available on phoebean.com, which is F-I-B-I-N dot com. <laughs>